Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on February 21st, Lord's Day service. The words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 45. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is a light in a dark place. Psalm 119 tells us that your word is a light to our path and a word whose entrance gives light. And so, Father, we pray that your word would dispel darkness and give us insight into your will. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Not long ago, a Christian told me that they really want God to move in their life. They said they really want their life to look different. And Christians all know that their lives should look different from the world. And Christians want their life to look different from the world. And that's pretty much what this passage is about. And so, before we get into the meat of this passage, let's establish the context. So look with me at Mark chapter 1, verse 17. And Jesus said to them, it's Peter and Andrew, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then it says in verses 19 and 20 that Jesus called James and John. And then it says immediately they left and followed him. And so as we pick up in Mark chapter 1, verse 29, the scene is that Peter, Andrew, James, and John are following Jesus around. But they're not just following Jesus around. They are learning to be disciples. And that's what these verses are teaching us. They are teaching us what it means to be a disciple. 
And they're teaching us that if we really follow Jesus, then our lives will look different. How will our lives look different? Well, we're going to see five ways that our lives will look different. And so if we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different. How will they look different? Well, number one, we will take things immediately to Jesus. Look with me, Mark chapter 1, verse 30, as we get into this first scene of of our passage this morning. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And so we've got this scene here where Simon's mother-in-law is sick, and I want you to notice that here Simon's mother-in-law is sick with fever, and we're told in verse 30 that immediately they told Jesus about her. I want you to reflect on this. Notice what their first instinct is. Their first instinct upon hearing that someone is sick, their first instinct is to tell Jesus and how right they were. And the point isn't that if you send for a doctor, you don't trust God. That's not the point. The point is that a Christian's first instinct should always be Jesus. And this requires training. That's not natural. A child doesn't just wake up or doesn't just, isn't just born and then go through their early life just naturally trending towards Jesus. This has to be taught. This has to be trained. And so we must train our own hearts to trust Jesus, to take things first to Jesus. Parents, we must train our children's hearts to immediately take things to Jesus and to trust Jesus. We live in a world of sin and sorrow and darkness. We will all shed many a tear. We will all experience many a gut punch. And our goal as Christians should be that we will immediately take it to Jesus. Our habits should be trained to at once take it to Jesus. And Christians know when they read a passage like this, that if Jesus can heal a fever of the body, then Jesus can heal the most sin-sick soul. And so what we see here is that if we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different. How will it look different? Well, first, we will take things immediately to Jesus. Second, we will serve others. We will serve others. Look what happens next in this story. Verse 31. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Notice, what is the response of someone who has experienced the healing power of Jesus? Well, she got up and she immediately began to serve them. People who experience the healing power of Jesus are busy serving others. They're not just busy, mind you. They are busy serving others. And that, by the way, is the main distinction between a busy body and God-approved busyness. God-approved busyness involves serving others. A busy body is usually serving themselves. They're usually indulging themselves. 
And so the problem with busyness is not busyness. It's that we're often busy doing the wrong thing, serving ourselves rather than serving others. And so notice what's going on here in this passage. One minute she is down, ill with fever. But once she is healed, it says in verse 31, she began to serve them. There's a word for this. We call this transformation. This is what God does. He transforms you. He makes what was old new. He makes what was dead alive. He makes the slave free. This is transformation. And this is something we need to take note of. Jesus transforms people. He transforms people from saying, eh, no one calls me when I'm not there, into being people who say, I need to check on so-and-so who wasn't there. Jesus transforms people from saying, I wish somebody would care enough to serve me, into being people who say, who can I serve today? Once you were healed, you get out of the sin-sick bed. And if I could magically gather all of American evangelical Christians in front of me and read to them one verse, it would be Mark chapter 1, verse 31. Because what I've noticed is they are obsessed with their former sin. They almost glory in their former sin. It's almost as if they want to stay in the sin-sick bed. And they fail to realize that when Jesus heals you, you get out of the sin-sick bed. You leave it behind. And you move forward. And what do you do when you move forward? You serve others. In God-wrought transformation, God turns the weed patch into a garden. Does that new garden still have weeds in it? Yes. But now it's a garden. Now it's something fundamentally different than what it was. It's been transformed. And so if we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different. How will our lives look different? Well, first, we will take things immediately to Jesus. Second, we will serve others. How else will our lives look different? Number three, we will bring others to Jesus. Look what happens next, beginning in verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to Him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. They saw Jesus heal Simon's mother-in-law, and so then they start to think, well, if Jesus can heal Simon's mother-in-law, we should bring everyone else who needs healing to Jesus. This is what we'll do. When we're following Jesus, we will bring others to, to Jesus. When the healing power of Jesus is seen, when it's experienced, you bring others to His feet. When the healing power of Jesus is questioned or scoffed at, you murmur and you resist, just like the scribes did. When you are satisfied under the authority of Jesus, when you are satisfied with the healing power of Jesus, you will bring others to Think of it like this. If your out-of-town friends come in for a visit, are you going to bring them to the restaurant where the food is so-so, where the service could be better and the entire experience is unsatisfying? No, you're not going to take them to that restaurant. 
When your out-of-town friends come for a visit, you're going to take them to that restaurant where the food is fantastic, where the atmosphere reflects the best things of local culture. You're going to bring them to the restaurant that is very satisfying. And this is a universal principle that spans beyond just religious things. When you find something satisfying, you bring people to that thing. And so it's really simple. If you find Jesus satisfying, you will bring others to him. If you don't find Jesus satisfying, you won't bring others to him. And so what we see in this passage is if we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different. How will it look different? Well, we'll take things immediately to Jesus. We will serve others. We will bring others to Jesus. How else will our lives look different? Number four, we will pray. You have to look no further than the Lord Jesus Himself for an example of what it looks like to honor the Lord with our lives. Now, we have to say that Jesus did not come primarily to be an example. Jesus came primarily to accomplish something, namely our redemption. Nevertheless, the life of Jesus is for us an example. And there is one such example in this passage that we need to pay attention to. Look with me at verse 35. We now have something of a scene change here in verse 35. And this is one of the most oft-pointed-to passages in the New Testament. When it says, Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And so whenever we talk about prayer, we usually refer to this voice, and we point out that Jesus wakes up early and he goes into uh, solitude to pray. And so notice, Jesus was sinless, and he still prayed. Jesus was God the Son, and He still prayed to God the Father. Jesus created the world, and He still prayed. Are you sinless? Then how much more do you need to pray? Are you God? Then how much more do you need to pray? Did you create the world? Then how much more do you need to pray? The point is that if the one with full authority prayed, how much more ought we who are full of weakness pray? Listen carefully. It's a world where there's a lot of cynicism. It's a world where uh, children raised in the church reject their upbringing. They reject the Lord they were taught to love. The first sign that someone is beginning to reject the authority of Jesus, the first sign, that they are beginning to reject the authority of Jesus is they stop praying. If you trust in the full authority of Jesus, why would you not take everything to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us? And so if we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different. How will it look different? Number five, we will see Jesus as the death defeater. We will see Jesus as the death defeater. Now in Mark chapter 1, this point is veiled. And so I'm going to invite you behind the veil for a moment. 
and I want you to notice a pattern that is found in Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read to you three different verses in Mark chapter 1. Notice the pattern. Here, Mark chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. This is involving some demons. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Then, Mark chapter 1, verse 34, involving demons again, it says, He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And then you see the same sort of thing again in chapter 1, verses 42 through 44. This time, not with demons, but with the man healed of leprosy. Look at it beginning in verse 42. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Of course, you didn't read to see that the man didn't obey Jesus here. He went and told everyone. But you see this pattern in Mark chapter 1. Three times you see Jesus telling them, don't tell other people who I am. He says this to the demons twice. He says this to the man healed of leprosy. What is going on here? I thought the point was to reveal Jesus to people. And yet Jesus himself is telling you, don't reveal who I am. Don't say anything. What's going on here? Now, some refer to this as the messianic secret. And that goes back to a book published in 1983 by that name. <clears throat> but the better description of what's going on here is this is Jesus' veiled disclosure. This is Jesus' veiled disclosure. Jesus is disclosing who He is throughout His three-year ministry. That is, He is revealing who He is throughout His three-year ministry. But He's doing it in a veiled way. He's doing it in a deliberate, gradual way. And so... You see this in the Synoptic Gospels, where Jesus tells demons or healed people to not reveal who He is. It's, in particu it's particularly emphasized in Mark's Gospel. So Jesus is revealing who He is throughout the Gospel of Mark, but He's doing it in a veiled way. Throughout these Gospels, Jesus orders demons and healed people not to reveal who He is. And, and when people read this, they always ask questions. They, this always gets people's attention. They think, why would Jesus stop them from revealing who He is? Why would Jesus not just fully disclose Himself all at once? We all know Jesus is traveling around. Here He's in Galilee. He heals some people. He casts out demons. There's this amazing supernatural manifestation. All the people there saw it. Why would He not, in the moment, while it's fresh, use that opportunity to reveal to them who He is, that He's the Son of God, the Messiah, come to save them? Why does he in that moment shush them? Why doesn't he just fully disclose himself all at once? Why, through the course of his three-year ministry, does he do this veiled, gradual, deliberate disclosure? And the reason is this. The reason is because Jesus came to seek and save the lost through his death and resurrection. 
not necessarily through casting out a demon, not necessarily through healing a man with leprosy. Those are pointing to something else, the power to defeat death and to be raised from the dead. Jesus came to seek and save the lost through His death and resurrection, which means it's impossible to fully understand who Jesus is apart from His death and resurrection. And so that means if you see Jesus as leprosy healer, but not death defeater, then you haven't fully seen Jesus. If you see Jesus as demon remover, but not death defeater, then you haven't fully seen Jesus. If you see Jesus as witty teacher, but not death defeater, you haven't fully seen Jesus. And so Jesus is slowly revealing who He is to the people because Jesus knows that until His death and resurrection, the people, even the disciples we read in the Gospels, are going to misunderstand and distort who He is and why He came. Now consider an example of this fact in Mark's Gospel. We're reading here in Mark chapter 1, but if we leap to the end, Mark chapter 15 is this is the glorious moment of Mark's Gospel. It's this very long, detailed description of the crucifixion. And after Jesus is put on the cross, the Roman centurion in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, says this. It says, When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, in Mark's Gospel, until the centurion makes this confession in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, no human in the book of Mark explicitly identifies Jesus as the Son of God. Now, yes, in Mark chapter 8, Peter makes the good confession, but he doesn't confess Jesus as the Son of God. He confesses Jesus as Lord. In Mark's Gospel, until the crucifixion, we have no human being explicitly identifying Jesus as the Son of God. And this is particularly noteworthy when you read Mark chapter 1, verse 1, which is the thesis statement for the whole book. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Which means the entire point of the book is to present the good news of Jesus, that He is the Son of God. And then you see nothing explicit about it until the very end. Why is this? Well, it's for the same reason Jesus shushes the demons in the man He healed from leprosy. It's because it is impossible to fully understand the full identity of Jesus Christ without understanding His sacrificial death. And then also His resurrection that we see in Mark chapter 16. And so, as we conclude for today, if we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different. How will our lives look different? Well, we saw a few weeks ago that we will have a bigger view of salvation. Remember that? And what we see this morning is that we will take things immediately to Jesus. We will serve others. We will bring others to Jesus. We will pray. And we will trust in Jesus as the death defeater. Christians all know their lives should look different from the world. And Christians want their life to look different from 
the world. And so I encourage you to take these things we see in this passage, press them into each other's lives during the coming weeks, talk about these things with your families and with each other, encourage one another to truly live lives that are different from the world. Let us close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we know that our lives ought to look different from the world, a world that is in rebellion against You. And so, Father, we trust that You, through Your Spirit, will sanctify us. You are faithful. You have promised. Your hand is not weak. You have the power to transform us because He who calls You is faithful and He will surely do it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh.